Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Drs. Josh Kim and Edward Maloney. Dr. Kim has a PhD in sociology and demography from Brown University. He is the director of online learning and strategy at Dartmouth College and posts daily to his blog on Inside Higher Education titled Technology and Learning. And for the purposes of full disclosure, he is also my brother-in-law. Dr. Maloney holds a PhD from The Ohio State University in English Literature and a master's degree from Syracuse University in English and Textual Studies. He is the executive director of the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University, a professor of the practice of narrative literature and theory in the Department of English, and the founding director of the program in Learning, Design, and Technology. My esteemed guests, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Hey, Natalie. (laughs) That's Josh for everyone. (laughs) Hi, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Great. So I'd like you to tell me more about yourself, aside from the information I've provided above and how you came to work where you do. And Josh, to invoke nepotism just a little bit, we'll we'll go with you first. Sure. Natalie, it's really good to be uh, here with you and Eddie. Uh, I guess the most important thing about me is that my brother is Mac Masnick, <laughs> your husband, and my yes. brother is a, a, a data scientist um, and much, much smarter th- than I am. <laughs> yeah. And in m- many areas, smarter than most people I know. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so, Eddie, to you. I don't, I don't know your husband or his brother, so yeah. I'm uh, feeling a little bit at a loss now. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you and, and with Josh, who I always enjoy talking with. I haven't spoken with him in like a week, so I'm feeling like I miss him. How did I get to where I am? Well, that's all. That's a long story, but one of the things that I think is really exciting about where we are is that the, the work that we've been doing over the past 20 plus years, or I've been doing, and I know Josh has been doing in, in different ways, is really kind of becoming crucial right now in, in higher education. It's, a, it's both challenging and important and we're in difficult times, and it's, it's great to be able to be a, of a help of sorts. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's really fortunate that you all have been studying what you studied. And Eddie, just to follow up with you, how did you and Josh connect? What was how did you meet each other and start, you know, writing books and doing research together? So we had met quite a number of years ago, but we actually really didn't start kind of connecting and working together until about eight years ago, seven years ago, when MOOCs kind of became a, a thing, massive open online courses. Mm-hmm. And Josh and I started to um, kind of find ourselves at similar conferences and in similar conversations about what was happening with um, our partner at the time, uh, or still our partner, not Dartmouth anymore, but uh, edX. Uh, are you guys still partners with, with edX, Josh? I guess I should ask that question before I say you're not. But. Yeah, 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 we're still working with edX. Okay. So, um, and in those, in those conversations, I think we started to see there's just a lot of synergy and the work that we were doing and the the ways that we were thinking about this aligned pretty well and started to talk about what we might be able to do together in, in writing. So That's it's been a, a great partnership and it uh, continues to evolve and develop and at times gets really intense when we're working on a book and at times we're there kind of supporting each other's work from a distance. So that's really nice. Yeah, that is really nice. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll jump in here that, that Eddie, as usual, is being a little bit modest about things. Um, so, so Eddie is very well known in our, our community and has actually made Georgetown a, a real center of the conversations about, about learning innovation. The, the, the candles, the center that, that Eddie leads has, has, been, has had real leadership in the higher community about creating an integrated center where all the 
functions that have to go with teaching and learning and technology and faculty development and online learning are all integrated into one place. So Georgetown and Eddie were very early in that. And Eddie, for years, has brought many of our community together at Georgetown to, to really talk about the future of higher education. So together, you all have written two books. The first was Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education, which, according to the Amazon tagline, aims to give higher education professionals the language and tools they need to seize new opportunities in digital learning. That was released in February of this year. And your most recent book, titled The Low Density University, 15 Scenarios for Higher Education, which came out in August. Can you please tell me what prompted you to write your most recent book? We'll start with that one. And can you talk about these 15 scenarios? And Eddie, we'll start with you on this one. Great, thanks. Um, well, so what prompted us to write the book was, well, it was really more that we were writing a series of um, pieces for Inside Higher Education in the spring, and then that, I think, led to the book over the summer. But what prompted us to write those pieces in the spring was a desire to really be helpful for colleges and universities across the, the country, not just our local institutions where we were trying to help them make decisions about what we might be doing both for the spring, but also as we thought about the summer and then into the fall, what was going to be happening in higher education, looking at the problem that higher ed was facing, what kinds of choices uh, they would be able to make about their fall, whether that was uh, to be back on campus in a variety of different uh, configurations or to be fully remote. And we wanted to think about you know, what those options were, how those options might play out, um, how those options might be combined in different ways, really to give, in the end, I think really to give folks at different institutions across the country um, a language to talk about what was happening in the fall. So in, in some sense, the tagline that you read from Amazon on our first book applies uh, to this book as well and to, into that writing. We're, we're really interested in trying to help people not only understand the problem that's in front of them, but also to develop a, a set of tools a language, some ideas that they can use to kind of work through the problem in their local context. Mm -hmm. And Josh, do you want to comment on this as well? Sure. So the work that Eddie and I do is, is very much applied scholarship in that we're in the middle of working um, every day issues of academic continuity, of higher ed, ed change, institutional change, of teaching and learning on our campuses. So when we wrote the Low Density University, as Eddie talked about, in the spring, we were right in the middle of trying to figure out how higher education was going to deal with COVID-19. That's what we're doing every single day. And, and certainly Eddie at Georgetown has been at the, the, the very center of leading his institution's efforts. And, and again, other colleges and universities have very much tried to follow the, the model that that Georgetown has given. We certainly have been on Dartmouth. We looked, looked very closely and tried to um, mirror a lot of what we saw Georgetown doing. So we were doing that work and, and we figured out, well, while we're doing it, we should also be trying to write about it and capture what we're thinking. We need to have these internal communications on campus. So why don't we both do the work and, and write about it? And that was quite interesting and intense while we were right in the middle and trying to write about the 15 scenarios for inside higher ed, but the book then naturally evolved out of that, that writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you all are talking about this, this series of blog posts you did. I, I found one from April 22nd, which was titled 15 fall scenarios, which 
got a lot of traffic and subsequently spurred a, a poll of college students. Most college students who were polled about the options that you gave were opposed to school opening late and in general seemed resistant to those aspects of adapting to this novel coronavirus, which curtailed the social aspects of campus life. So did it surprise you that there was such a response to this post? And then given the poor national response, which has led to sort of an irregular distribution of outbreaks, how do you see the attitudes of students changing, if at all? and have your views on this change. And Josh, we'll start with you on this one. Um, well, first of all, we were gratified with the response to what we were writing on, on Inside Higher Ed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been writing for years and Eddie and I have written a lot of things on Higher Ed and you know, it gets pretty good you know, traffic and notice, but nothing at all like when we wrote the 15 scenarios. So there's clearly a hunger and, and the low density university book is doing very, very well at, at Hopkins Press. I, I think what, what did surprise me is what, what I've seen here at Dartmouth. So at Dartmouth, we brought back about half of our students to live residentially, but almost all the classes are online. So the students are here, but studying mostly from their residence halls. And mm-hmm. what, what has surprised me is that the, the students very much want to be on campus, even if it's a restricted kind of campus. And, and here in Hanover, it's certainly easier because we're remote from any urban areas. The, the, the caseload is very low up here in the upper valley. So it's, it's felt pretty safe. So I, I've been surprised that, that what the students really want to do is they want to come back to their residential experience, but they seem to be more or less okay if they have to do their then classes um, online. And I don't think I quite got the the desire for students to come back was not to come back for the classes, but to come back for <laughs> everything else. But everything else, but it doesn't it seem like a lot of the even the social aspects of campus have been curtailed. I've heard some students are, or some campuses are going with sort of a pod like culture where you can only see a certain number of other students. It's not as if they can go to a dining hall or, you know, go to football games and sit in the stands or um, things like that. So it, to me, I, I agree. I'm surprised that students want that. I'm also surprised that they find living in a dorm room and seeing maybe 10 other people an adequate social experience, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't think it, it's adequate. I mean, I, I know that from my younger daughter, Madeline, who goes uh-huh. uh, UVM and she was desperate to get back to campus. Yeah. Or, you know, hang out with a few friends, you know, hanging out with a few friends is infinitely better than being stuck at your parents' house. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. That's true. Eddie, did you have any thoughts on this question as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. It, it, it didn't surprise me that students want to be back on campus. In fact, even with a kind of curtailed, limited, constrained social environment, I don't know, I remember, it's been a long time, but I remember wanting to get out of the house when yeah. I was a college student. And, uh, you know, some of it's about about what you're going to. I mean, some of it's about just getting away from, as Josh was just saying, right? So it's, you know, there's kind of a version of, I need to spread my wings. I need to get out and be in a, in a different environment. And it's not perfect. And I think the students are recognizing that. At Georgetown, one of the things that we confronted was not um, just the challenge of bringing the students back, which we by and large have not done. We brought back a, a much smaller number of students, mostly students who have particular needs or um, insecurities at home in particular kinds of ways. Um, but our challenge was in thinking about how many students we'd bring back and what that, that group would look like. We were going to have to isolate most of those students for at least two weeks. 
Mm-hmm. They would have to have been, you know, in dorm rooms alone, uh, had food delivered to them and so on, uh, simply because of the rules that Washington, D.C. put in place uh, from states that uh, were not doing as well uh, with right. their numbers. And so for us, the decision came down to, can you really uh, keep 2,000 students or more, 5,000 students in dorm rooms and isolate them for two weeks and then open it up potentially to those pods or to those, you know, slightly larger um, but still constrained environments. And that seemed to make the choice for us, unfortunately. Something something about being in Hanover sounds really quite nice right now. Idyllic, yeah, right. So is Georgetown just not gonna bring most students back for the fall or is there a date you're gonna they're gonna try to do that or so we yeah, we didn't. We brought about five hundred students back. Um, some of them were already living on campus from the spring. Uh-huh. We brought a few more back. What ended up happening was about 2,000, I think, students ended up getting apartments and living you know, opportunities in D.C. So there are a lot of students who are back in the area who are now you know, having that kind of social engagement. They're just not on the Georgetown campus. All learning is happening remotely. I think the number of students that came back to live on campus, and it may even be higher than that, we had most of our seniors were, were already coming back and living off campus. And so they came mm-hmm. and kept doing that. We had a, a large number of first year students who um, decided to try to find places um, in the area and are living in apartments throughout DC. So not even close to campus necessarily in order to try to you know, connect and, and build some of that social engagement. Um, so that's not something that Georgetown is necessarily directly managing, though indirectly a lot of the health protocols and the agreements with the university and testing and so on are, are being extended to those students. Yeah. And Georgetown is such a unique place. It's, it's such a beautiful place. And to take the place out of that, in addition to the fact that I would imagine a lot of older students at Georgetown are doing things that have to do with being in Washington, D.C., right? Internships and things like that, which I'm sure they can't do right now because they're probably curtailing those kinds of activities. So that must be extra challenging for you all. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the things that students thought they were going to be doing when they came back are just not really available to them. So I wanted to throw one question in here that's a bit spontaneous. I was reading your book last night, which Thank you, Josh. You ex- ex- uh, provided a copy signed. I feel so special. Um, although it's, it's addressed to my husband, but I don't take it personally. So I just wanted to ask you both a question about, there's a, a part in here where you're talking about narratives in higher education about changing education, right? And so just to put this in context, I assume you wrote this long before coronavirus was on your radar because it came out in February of this year, just before the world turned upside down. But um And I don't know who wrote these sentences, but you say there was this conference in 2018 called Harvesting Academic Innovation for Learning, Hale, and participants were asked to respond to the idea that higher education needed to be radically disrupted and they had to walk to one side of the room. And you say that the participants were pretty equally distributed and that a plurality of passionate educators believe strongly and radical disruption is the only way for higher education to move forward. I understand that the people who did that did not mean coronavirus. Do you think that what has happened as a consequence of this pandemic has accomplished that in part? It kind of, when I read that sentence, I was like, wow, I wonder if they, if this is how they imagined it happening. And I don't know, Josh, do you want to go first? We haven't heard your voice in a minute. Sure. And and for the record, uh, I made Max buy the book as I made all family members buy <laughs> because, you know, we needed some. Yeah. He's cruel. <laughs> <laughs> but he did sign it, so, okay, yeah. He did sign it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, the timing was actually very uh, interesting in that we were actually on our book tour 
when when COVID hit, we we had just done a, a really great event at, at Hopkins and uh, George Mason and, and Georgetown, and we were set to go to Michigan and Notre Dame, and then COVID hit. So we we're sad that that we didn't get to finish our, our book tour. But we we also think in in writing the book that a lot of the themes that we we wrote about in in our first book did really uh, come to be borne out during the the pandemic. I mean, very briefly, one of the the big things that we we wrote about is is that for for colleges and universities now it's no longer a kind of nice to have to focus on learning and learning technology and and online learning and that's actually a, a, a core competency and that schools that have actually tried to build up their infrastructure to do um, different types of teaching and learning, whether it be blended or online, will be more resilient in, in the future. And that what colleges should not do is outsource this core capability. And you know, I think we very much found that schools that have made this investment in people who think about how learning is changing have been a lot more resilient during the pandemic have, and were able to really pivot very quickly from residential to remote um, learning and that schools that really did not make that kind of investment or outsourced that kind of investment to to companies to do kind of quick uh, online programs um, have right. not fared it as well. Yeah, yeah, right. And Eddie, did you want to comment on that as well? Um, yeah, I think so. So part of the argument in that statement that you read is about disruptive innovation and the approach that Clay Christensen, who passed away a few months ago, took uh, to thinking about how higher ed was going to change. And I think, so it definitely wasn't COVID driven, right. but it, it was it was very much this sense that technology and startup companies and these alternative options would come in and disrupt the kind of context of higher education. I think what we're seeing now is a kind of disruption but I think you're, what's interesting to me to watch and, and also to try to help manage is you're actually seeing what I, I kind of describe as a kind of pendulum swing that's happening in a, in a very kind of small um, space right now. So for the fall, uh, a number of schools kind of swung that pendulum pretty far to think about you know what they needed to do to be responsive to mm-hmm. um, this particular moment. And so one of those things is just not bringing students back. That's a pretty radical challenge going online fully remotely. That's a pretty radical challenge and so on. A lot of schools, though, didn't go as far as they might have. They didn't um, rethink their curriculum. They didn't focus in on a course structure that would meet the most number of students, for example, they didn't move to a modular approach in order to try to alleviate some of the stress and tension of focusing on um, courses, five courses at any one time and so on. So they didn't go completely radical. Um, they kind of, they swung a little bit and you're starting to see as, uh, as people start to think about, you know, what it would mean to return to a normal the swing going the other direction. People want back to that that residential experience and they want to kind of get back to where they were pre-COVID. My guess is what will happen is that that pendulum will swing a little bit back and forth for a while. You'll see some changes that'll, that'll get instituted uh, because of this moment. So you'll see some things that people will be more comfortable doing and using technology online, for example, flipping the classroom rather than going fully remote. So I'm starting to think about um, some of the advantages of online technologies that they were able to take um, advantage of while they were in a remote mode. And you'll kind of get this this swinging going back and forth for a while. And 
we'll probably settle in a slightly different place than we were pre-COVID. But I, I don't think um, we're going to be completely radically different at the end of uh, pre-COVID. Or are we going to see this kind of radical, disruptive um, innovation mode that uh, Christensen was thinking about? Yeah, it will be interesting. It's 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 interesting to think about what higher education will look like years from now and when we'll actually have this under control, like you say, to even, I mean, all of the conferences that for the big conferences for my discipline in the spring, even in the late spring, have all gone remote. So I think even people are anticipating that it'll be around for quite a while. Next, I wanted to move to talking about teaching. I do teach, but it's a very different context than you all. I teach medical students. I also teach residents and fellows. And it seems like, and master students. So it seems like the students are hungry for any kind of in-person experience, even if it's really different than what they did a year ago. And the unfortunate thing is that medicine tends to be very tactile. A lot of what students learn is a hands-on. So a lot of that has been kept in person while some of the more scholastic stuff has been kept remote. But I think in undergrad, there are analogous things like laboratory classes. There are things you can't do online, or you it's probably a lot harder to do, I should say. So just what portions of the curriculum at your institutions did you think were more easily adaptable to online learning and which have been harder or even not even attempted? Do you think there are some learning experiences which will never be able to be made virtual? And Eddie, we can start with you on this one. That's a great question. And certainly one of the challenges we ran into in the spring in particular, as we were trying to go really quickly into this this remote mode, um, like what courses could we could we translate into the space? So Two things. One, there are definitely courses that are and, and programs of study that are hard to do in a, in a remote environment. The tactile stuff is really challenging, of course. So in our lab-based courses, we tend to focus on data analysis and not on the the, mm-hmm. you know, the tactile stuff that would happen in the lab. And, and a lot of our, our faculty are thinking, you know, that's probably okay. You know, some of those uh, mechanical skills are not the most important piece of what we're asking students to do in the lab. And we spent a lot of time trying to um, get students through that process. The performance, there's just no getting around the fact that there is, there's latency problems in, in online and you can't, you really can't do uh, any sort of musical performance in, a, in an online environment. It's just, it's, it's impossible. There's one tool that I've seen out of Stanford, I think, that uh, has made it a little bit more possible, but it's a pretty heavy lift um, for folks to even try to install and use. And, and for the most part, it's, it, it's, still, it's still a challenge and it's audio only, so not audio and video. So you run into all sorts of challenges um, with, with that, that particular one. Um, seems to me that the nut that's going to be hardest to crack. Others, I think, you know, it's one of the interesting things that I've seen is not really what the course is, but what the size of the course is. And what we found uh, throughout the spring was that large courses did fine. Um, they were mostly lecture courses anyway. There are a lot of ways of, of making those a little bit more dynamic even in the online space. And so those were fine. Small classes, 15 and under, were fine as well. The classes that were between 15 and 45-ish were a real challenge. Once you get into like 25, 35 student range, it's hard to manage that number of students. The faculty were used to a particular kind of pedagogical approach that required a lot of dialogue and discussion mixed in with lecture. And those things are, they require kind of a fast back and forth between students and content delivery. And that becomes a little bit more challenging to try to, to try to do in a classroom. So it was less the, the discipline or the content and more the size of the class that became a challenge. Or, you know, again, when you get to kind of performance-based stuff, it's just impossible because of the 
the physical limitations and the latency issue. I mean, it's a speed of light problem. That <laughs> just, I mean, it, it yeah. really, it really kind of comes down to physics. We can't. There's certain things we just can't do in that space. So, are you talking about musical performance as in not one person, but people trying to perform together? For your exactly. Virtual? Okay. Yeah. yeah. The only way to do it is asynchronously. You have to have people record their right. um, pieces and then you sync them up after after the case. But to try to do that in a synchronous environment is impossible. Yeah, right they now. make it look so good on the Late Show, but I guess that's probably like it, they have a TV producer <laughs> doing all of that. Yeah, it's it's, it's all it's all after all, all post production in that sense. And, the, and the, I mean, again, there are things you can do. There's like I said, there's there's one piece of software that I've seen that that does its best to reduce latency. There's a really good video out there about the oddly, if you're interested, yeah. about the the latency issue and like what it what the the latency needs to be for performances to actually. Um, be possible, including the latency that happens between two people across the stage from each other. Like there's a there's a there's a, an amount of time even there for sound to travel that requires a particular kind of latency, and it fits within that um, that space. Yeah. But once you extend the distance, and then of course when you introduce technology, it gets much more complicated. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good point. Um, Josh, did you want to comment on this question? I, I do, and I, I want to turn this around a little bit because Eddie and I are thinking about our next book. And mm, our, oh, and, wow. And our next book, we're, we've been kind of thinking about, well, the future of residential education. So, you know, Natalie, I'm thinking about when when you, your kids, your, your and Max's kids, I guess in what, 2032 and 2035 is when? Oh, Lord, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. So Natalie, yeah. I'll ask you, um, yeah. what, what do you think um, college will look like when, when you send your kids off to school in 2032 and 2035? So I know I'm probably putting my foot in it here because you all know so much more about this than I do. But when I think about how much college costs, okay, and I, I'm privileged, I, I can afford to send my kids to college. I went to a state school um, and it was it had limited things about it. But I think... It, they projected amount that it's a it's predicted to cost when my children are old enough, and if what happens now really kicks colleges when they're down, I mean it seems like financially a lot of colleges are in trouble. I don't even know what the landscape is going to look like. You know, they say that maybe these like smaller liberal arts colleges are going to take a real hit. Maybe it will be. I mean, you write in your book about community colleges and how many students in this in the United States use those. I have to imagine that maybe that will expand, you know, maybe there will be more of those, maybe more students will use those for a few years and then end up getting their degree from a more uh, well-known institution. So I'm kind of waiting to see. And also, I think it really depends what you want to study. You know, my kids are very different. And I mean, Josh, your kids are really different. Eddie, I don't know if you have kids, but it's it seems like it for some pursuits, it's really worth spending that extra money to send your children to a place like Georgetown where they can go intern on the Hill or something if they're interested in politics, you know, but if your child wants to study the arts, maybe Georgetown isn't the place for them. Or I don't know, there's probably a million museums there. So that might be a bad example, but um, it, it just, I, I, I don't quite know. And I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see. And I hope by the time they're old enough that the, the decision will be easier to make. But in terms of whether or not I think it will be online, I think that, and I was going to ask this to you all later, the idea of the flipped classroom, I think that that's here to stay, actually. 
And I think it's a good thing. I think that if students are expected to listen to the lecture material before they go to class and then they have actual discussions about the material, that will be loads better than what I did in undergrad, which was sit in lecture halls and have people talk at me all day long. You know, even in medical school, that's what I did. So I hope that goes away permanently. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Yeah, please. (laughs) And and by the way, Max and I often have these debates, so it's it's interesting. So, you know, I, I know to send, you know, my two kids to through college now, older ones graduated and the younger ones a junior. It, it's it's the most expensive thing we've ever done. It, it's right. more expensive than our house. And and I'm wondering, do, do you think, and all indications are when by the time your kids are in college, it'll be even more expensive. Yeah. And disproportionately more like the, it's not going up at some sort of rate of increase of people's salary in the economy. It's like going, it's like exponential growth. So exactly. yeah. But, yeah. And do you think that's going to be worth it? Like, you know, give I it, don't, I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth on this, right? I mean, if you're, if your child wants to do, you know, if, like a, like a hard science or something, I'm not sure that there's really an advantage because I went to a medical school that probably not a lot of people have heard of but I'm still a doctor, you know? So I think maybe, but if you want to do something where you really need those connections, I keep coming back to politics, but something like that, political science, maybe, maybe it is more worth it, but um, I don't know. Eddie, do you have thoughts about this? Do you have children? I don't even know if you have children. I do. Um, and they're two and four years away from school or um, mm-hmm. thereabouts, oh. so depending on you know when they decide to go. So um, kind of starting to think about this pretty seriously. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the cost challenge is, is huge and we're, it's the, you know, it's a terrible time to, to think about that given that, as you mentioned, a lot of institutions are going to struggle to even stay, you know, open after this, uh, after the pandemic recedes and, um, or during it right now, I, I, you know, there's most colleges and universities, except for state schools and community colleges cost about the same. Right. They're they're within a kind of range that's not all that different, and obviously, if you go to state school out of state, it's even um, those state schools cost about the same as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's it, you know the the range the differential range between most schools is not that great. Um, it doesn't seem to me um, that that's what makes the decision between schools, except for a community college or a state school. And I think we have some amazing state schools in this country. Um, so. A, perfectly wonderful option. I happen to live in a state of Virginia where, you know, some of our best schools are our state schools. In fact, good, I think- Good state to be in if you're looking yeah, at state options for real. That's right. You know, in California, I think the same, um, you know, you have places where the state schools are just, are just incredible. So, uh, you know, having those options becomes really important. If we can figure out how to adjust for the, for the cost um, challenge, I think that'll be an important next step after this. It's just we're, we're we're confronting a really difficult problem, which is we have a, a highly educated workforce in a space where there's a lot of competition for those skills, and mm-hmm. trying to keep those people at an institution to do the best possible work is expensive, and it doesn't go up at the cost of living because of the competitive economic system we have in place. And so you're trying to sort of manage all that, and then there are other there are other influences I mean, uh, and issues that the cost of real estate in a lot of places is so high yeah. and it's a, it's a poorly used real estate. It's only used for, you know, a, a small or a small enough percentage of the year that, you know, if it's not fully utilized and there's a lot of deferred maintenance on those pieces, you know, so all of those things start to add up really quickly and create a cost model that that's really challenging for higher education 
to manage. So finding alternatives, finding ways in which higher ed can actually create connections with students that are lifelong, perhaps subscription models, things that will keep students connected, but don't necessarily play out in that kind of four-year intense period where you're spending $250,000 to send your kids to school could be an yeah. option. It could be one of the ways in which we move forward. But I just also wanted to say, I absolutely agree with you. I think flipped classrooms are here to stay. I think the technology that people are seeing certain values in will, will continue to be part of their pedagogy. And, and the most gratifying thing that I've seen over the past six months is a large number of our faculty saying the things that we've been teaching them all throughout the summer are things that they can they know they will continue to do well mm-hmm. past this moment in time. So that's that's really a good good outcome um, from this really difficult moment. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about real estate because I think, you know, I heard this feedback from not just medical learners, but also other learners that this idea of the flipped classroom and taking things virtually, it could free up a lot of space, you know, and especially if you're thinking about remote workers, not just the students, but administration type persons who had office space. Do they really need it? Can they work mostly remotely? Could they share an office? Could they come in one day a week and then you would have five people basically using one office? Could you decrease cost in that way? That would be a very interesting model that if I were in charge of finances, especially at a place like Georgetown, where it costs like $45 to park your car for an hour, I can't imagine it's um, inexpensive to run that place. So, Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. and that's part of every conversation right now. To, yeah. So I think at every institution where there was there were construction projects underway and yeah. plans, um, they're all yeah. rethinking those. What does it mean right. to build a new building right now? So. Uh-huh. so now I was going to ask you both a concrete question about teaching online. So we're all teaching online now way more than we ever did, although I assume you all have been doing it longer than I have and than most people have. Can you talk about what your go-to methods are for keeping students engaged in virtual learning? We've all acknowledged the flipped classroom method. I assume you're all using that. And Josh, you can take a first crack at this question. Sure. Yeah. And, and we all are <laughs> teaching yeah. uh, online now, and I know you're doing that as well. You know, the, the way I, I think about this is you know, I think about my own experience as a student and, you know, I saw my wife go through medical school. I didn't get to see you go through medical school, Natalie, but when I saw Julie go through medical school, what the experience can be described as uneven. Like sometimes the classes were really great where the professor really made a, a close connection to the learners as people and they really worked together to construct the knowledge. And at some points, the class were all about information delivery and to try to see how much they could cram, uh, you know, into people's heads to regurgitate back in in a test. So what's been so interesting during COVID is that we've had a chance to work with all these professors and to not really talk about technology, but to talk about really education as, as a method where you're constructing knowledge with the learner, where you're actually working together as partners to figure things out. And the technology can help facilitate that, but the technology is, is just a bridge. So, you know, I think once COVID ends, that w- we hope we stay in that kind of mode where we move away from a lot of the, the traditional ways that education has been done with high stakes exams and, and lots of content to cover and really try to get more into this way of playing to student strengths. Of, of having lots of active learning kind of assignments, lots of uh, formative assessments, and, and really a focus on the social engagement that actually makes learning um, effective. What's an active learning assignment? What's an example of that for you? What does that mean? Well, you know, what, what it really means is trying to move away from 
high stakes exams and focus on content and trying to move towards ways where, where learners are actually doing things and hopefully doing things that mirror what they'll be doing once they get out. I mean, med school is great that I, I think it, it's certainly it's begun to shift, but I don't know if this was your experience. It was uh, my wife's experience where the preclinical years were sort of all this cramming down science. And then they got to the clinical years where they got hands on and could, could do things. And it didn't really seem like all the preclinical years were very good predictors of you know, how good a doctor you would be. And you know, it was really more of how, how much you could sort of be tortured and yeah. do well to get past the, the board exams. I, I know at, 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 at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine, there's been a real effort to move the, the clinical work very early and to get students working with patients and to, into that mode as, as soon as possible. I don't think that's universal uh, across medical schools and certainly not universal across higher ed. So I, I, I hope that coming out of COVID, that, that shift gets accelerated. Yeah, yeah. I would say I was probably right between the two. I think that's it's shifted a lot now. The trouble with something like medicine is if you put a student into a clinical context and they don't know what they're talking about, I think a lot of times that creates more anxiety than it's almost worth. So I think a lot of students have, or a lot of schools have bridged that gap by having sort of almost like virtual or simulated patient experiences where they just get used to talking to people. But I, I certainly, when I talk to medical students, I will tell them the first two years are about a acquiring knowledge, just basic knowledge, so you can be conversant because medicine is almost like a foreign language, which there are a lot of words we use that other people don't use, and you have to be able to say those to understand your colleagues. But I tell them a lot of times it's not about learning, it's about learning and seeing how much you can take. And how much you can take, I try to twist and make it a positive thing and say it's teaching you how to memorize things and it's teaching you how to retain information, which unfortunately is necessary in our field. But it can feel like torture. I completely agree with you. Although knowing your wife, I bet she was pretty good at doing that because she seems like one of the most resilient people I've ever met. So Eddie, did you want to take a, a go at this one? Um, yeah, no, I think those answers are, are great. So I, I think anything we can do to just shift the dynamic away from passive reception of information um, mm -hmm. is is important. That doesn't mean that there aren't moments where it's really important to hear in a kind of didactic mode, um, mm -hmm. you know, information that's crucial to understand the context in which you might start to then do a particular kind of work. This is not new. I think, you know, probably the oldest learning methods um, are active, uh, whether that's an apprenticeship model um, where, you know, people were actually trying to learn a particular skill uh, by apprenticing with a master of some sort uh, is a, is a, you know, longstanding model that we know is incredibly effective or, you know, a, a, a dialogic models. Those are all very active, active approaches to teaching and learning. Um, what we saw, and I think this is especially in the 1950s, late 40s in this country, GI Bill, the growth of student populations in colleges and universities. We saw a need for <clears throat> universities and colleges to be more efficient in how they were um, meeting the larger number of students. And so the lecture really became an efficiency approach, an efficiency mm. tool to try to deliver mm -hmm. contents and to get as many students as possible um, access to that information, right? We didn't have the same ability to access information digitally that we do now, obviously. Books are not uh, quite as, there's certainly books are prevalent, but they, the number of books and the availability of books and even in, in books were expensive, um, especially uh, high quality textbooks and so on. Uh, so that kind of lecture approach really, uh, I think, 
comes into being in part because of that sense of efficiency. We now have more efficient ways of doing that. So it'll be interesting to see if we can get away from that just in generally that didactic delivery of information, as you mentioned, the kind of flipped classroom is one of those. But anything we can do then to kind of reinforce what students do with that information to make sure that that information is applied, um, engaged, and it's not simply assumed because it's been heard to be learned. And that, you know, I think is something that everyone is seeing uh, as an important part of the kind of learning experience, not only this moment in time now, but over the past 20, 30 years. So that, that shift has been happening for quite some time. It's just now been accelerated in the past six months. Yeah, definitely. So in your most recent book, you write that a pandemic magnifies and concentrates academic privilege. And surely this is true for all levels of education where now not only is parental flexibility a must, but also access to computers and high-speed internet connections are. So how are you all seeing this issue now, say, compared to a year ago? With shifts in priorities, it may be tempting to think that resources are being shifted towards students who may need financial assistance in order to make remote learning or hybrid learning a reality. How do you see access to learning and assuring an even playing field now that we are well into the fall of 2020? And Eddie, we can start with you on this one. It's a great question, and it's one that Josh and I have been um focusing in on a lot over the past six months. I don't think we've solved this one in any way, shape, or form. So I, I don't know that things have changed um, dramatically in terms of what the what the goals would be and, and what we might do to, to mitigate some of these challenges. I think what we are seeing, however, is that most institutions now and maybe most faculty across those institutions are aware of this challenge in ways that they weren't six, seven, eight months ago. They're, they're actually, under, they understand better now um, many of the challenges that our students face. Some, you know, are more focused in and attentive to that than others. But for the most part, you now have a large um, swath of the community who realizes that when the students actually come to campus, um, there's a leveling of their access to information. There's a leveling of their access to housing and to food and to technology, to the internet. All of those things now are available to those students in ways that they're completely uneven when they're in their home environments or their permanent addresses. And so that awareness is crucial, that it just didn't exist across institutions in the way that it does now. There certainly were pockets of, of people at institutions whose jobs it were or was to, to kind of pay attention to that. But now I think you have a broad scale awareness and hopefully that broad scale awareness will you know, translate at some point into trying to help address and solve that. I don't know how we'll do that. I, I think there could be some really ham-fisted approaches to that, making everybody you know, commit to having high-speed internet and a laptop at home before they can even register for, for school. That, that could be one. Uh, if you kind of lived through the 90s and the technology boom, um, in higher ed, that was an approach that a lot of schools took. Like everyone was going to have to have a laptop when they came to campus or, you know, that's an expensive proposition and realizing that many of our students are challenged to be able to afford that um, is is not necessarily going to make that kind of solution, I think, viable. So we'll, we'll, I don't, I don't know what the solutions are. I think institutions will have to find some balance of providing resources for students, which right now are are, are limited. Just to give you an example of that, when we went remote in the spring and then as we kind of moved into the fall, a lot of institutions across the country were trying to figure out how to give students internet access um, when they didn't have it at home. Mm -hmm. And what you ended up realizing were a couple of things. One, in some 
cases, students just live in areas where there is no high-speed internet access. That's where their permanent address is. It's a remote rural area. You cannot get broadband there. And that's mm-hmm. a problem. And then two, you had this kind of fetishization of these Wi-Fi devices from Verizon and others, as if you took this little device and you put it in your home, you'd now all of a sudden have broadband access. Um, so uh, these MiFi devices and things like that. And the reality is those are no better than a cell phone. And so if and most students have cell phones and um, they're able to already do that kind of work. But this assumption that um, the technology was there to solve the problem was was mostly wrong. So it's not just a school problem. It's not just a, an institutional challenge. It's a location challenge. It's mm-hmm. often uh, a financial challenge. And it's, it's certainly not the case that we have the technology in the country, in the world, that can solve that easily for, for everybody. Okay. And what about you, Josh? How do you how are you seeing this? You know, we we as Eddie mentioned, we talk a lot about this in, in our latest book, that what COVID has done is, is concentrated privilege um, in, in higher education and, and really brought into stark relief the, the, the structural inequalities that exist. You know, I, I think we're at, at kind of a moment of national reckoning about this in, in a lot of ways with, with politics, but one of the, the um, aspects that Eddie and I write a great deal about is that at, at some point, we as a nation need to invest in our public institutions. You know, that, that really starts with community colleges that, that educate a plurality of our students that have the, the lowest um, funding level and every level of, of public higher education. So we, we very much think that, you know, those of us who are privileged and, and who are at uh, private nonprofit institutions really need to find common ground and have a role to play to advocate for our colleagues in the sector at community colleges and at, at public institutions. That's where the vast majority of um, students go, you know, college students, medical students, graduate mm-hmm. students go to public institutions and, and the, the public disinvestment from these institutions over the last 30 years has been extreme. And we're yes. seeing the results of that um, mm-hmm. during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and and even on a broader sense, to treat broadband internet as you know just as essential in this day and age as having lights and having running water. I mean, I know a lot of people would probably argue against that, but if we're talking about leveling the playing field from an educational perspective, I think not only for university level students, but even for high school students and and you know middle school students, it's going to be important. So. If we might rewind a bit for both of you, it was prescient that you were both interested in in this area. So how did you all become interested in online learning and digital learning to begin with? And Eddie, we can start with you on this one. That's a great question. So my answer is going to be a little bit uh, obnoxious, but I'm actually not interested at all in online learning. What I am interested in in, in is learning and and teaching. I'm, I'm interested in higher education as a as a kind of critical problem that we need to understand uh, the work that we do in that space. And I think in in a lot of ways we lost the ball for for a bit of time. Not everywhere and not across all institutions, but a lot of our more prominent institutions, I think, lost, took its eye off the idea that we were here to teach students, which is kind of assumed that that was um, such a kind of normal part of practice that we stopped paying attention to how we did that and why we did that and, and how we did that as well as we possibly could. And so I'm interested in that problem. What does it mean for us to teach in the best possible way um, that we can to make our students' experience um, as rich as possible, both from a, a learning perspective, but also from a formation perspective, our students 
for, you know, at least historically, traditionally come at a particular period of time in their lives where that sense of growth and formation is really important to them. And the role of an institution in helping to, to shape students to be, you know, I think good members of our societies is really crucial. Um, and so thinking about all of those contexts, online becomes one of the tools um, that we have to do that as, as well as possible. It, it certainly becomes a tool to help potentially address some of the cost issues we were talking about earlier. It certainly can be a tool to help uh, meet students who have uh, different kinds of challenges in terms of their, their ability to learn, their ability to access an institution and so on. So I'm not really at all interested in online as a thing, uh, but I am interested in online as part of this context of, of teaching and learning that I think has been uh, lost at least for a while in terms of what institutions need to do and, and why they do what they do. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I, I want to sort of follow up on what Eddie said and kind of reiterate um, that that the interesting part of, of all of this is not the technology. You know, the technology is is, is just a, a tool. What's really interesting is is how people learn in learning science and how colleges and universities try to set their organizations and set their structures up so that they um, align with and mirror what we know about how people learn. And for, for years, you know, Eddie talks about this, there's been this kind of uh, divergence that, that learning science was not really at the, the core or the key to how colleges and universities were structured. Um, I, I think we might be at an inflection point, at, at, at a pivot point in, in our book, uh, Learning Innovation in the Future of Higher Education, we try to identify how much has happened and how much has changed since Eddie and I were students uh, back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s and today. And there's been, we think, a real revolution in teaching and learning, but we also think it's been kind of fragile and, and has not gone far enough. So it'd be very interesting when, when Natalie, when your kids go to college, if how they're, they're learning is really based about how we know people learn, right? And the, the science of learning. I think that's the work ahead of us. Yeah, to make sure we're actually doing not what we what feels good to an educator, but what is going to help the students the most. So remote learning, which we just touched on, part of general, general learning, and was perhaps at the leading edge of a trend of moving almost area, all areas of life to a virtual format. Dr. Kim, you have specifically written lately about the need for universities to be more flexible with scheduling for parents who now face the unenviable, and I will personally say exhausting task, of managing online education for their children while also trying to work. I agree with the aspirational tone of your blog on this topic, and one aspect that I would also hope will stay is the abandoning of the traditional work hours concept. I find in medicine in particular, the idea of working from home during odd hours is treated with skepticism and sometimes outright hostility. So I'd like to talk about this concept with each of you since you've been promoting online learning for some time and the rest of us are more or less catching up. Have you found more tolerance in your field for flexible work hours? How have you seen this change in 2020 and what do you hope for the future? And Josh, since this was your blog, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, when I wrote that, I was thinking about, about you guys as well. You know, mm -hmm. what we've seen is that for colleges and universities, and it's interesting you're extending this to medical education and, and hospitals and medical centers. I hadn't made that extent. It's very, it's an interesting extension. Anyway, what we found is is that the, the best people like like you and Max, like you guys also have kids, like that's a real thing. And the, the kids aren't going to go away. So if you want to, if 
if organizations and probably companies wanted to keep their best people, they had to be flexible. There, there's no choice now. It's not like you can sort of, you know, easily send your kid. You couldn't send your kids to school and the childcare options were incredibly limited. So people with school age kids or younger kids were, just had to balance this and employers had to be more flexible. They just didn't have a choice. Um, it, it's going to stay. And, and um, I'm hopeful, but I think we have to kind of keep pushing for that so we don't kind of revert back to the mean. I don't, Natalie, what do you think? Do you think that we'll, we'll actually be able to keep this shift? Well, I the thing is, medicine is so different from the space you all are in. And I envy some of my friends who don't work in medicine because there's this idea, right, that the workday starts at a certain time and the workday ends at a certain time. I remember, and I won't talk about places, but I've had jobs where they said, you need to be here at 7 a.m., And I would go in at 7 a.m. and there wasn't even any work to do. But it was just this idea of if you're tough and if you can do it, if you can hang with me, you need to come sit here. And what they didn't understand was that almost everyone I worked with in a lot of the situations either didn't have children or their children were old enough that they were self-sufficient or they had a parent who was a stay-at-home parent. And I don't have that. So then when I wanted more flexibility and it wasn't as if I was asking to have less work and pathology is unique in that sense. And a lot of what I do can be deferred to a different time, right? If it's not an intraoperative situation. And there's still a tonal difference, I think, in the way that people handle men and women in medicine. I know this. Um, And then also, there's this weird reluctance to even talk about the fact that people have children and that they need flexibility, because I think people are afraid they'll say the wrong thing. And also, they think that you're using it as an excuse. It's like, how can those two things be true at the same time? I don't know. But I will say that uh, most people... Um, when I'll say, you know, I came in late today because I was doing homeschooling, they'll look at me and say, oh, really? I didn't know you had to do that. And I was like, yeah, what am I going to do? Wear a sign around my neck? You didn't ask, you know, so I don't know what to say. I think it's really, really difficult to get through to people without seeming like you want less work, that you need more flexibility. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's a difficult, it's a really hard line to walk, especially as a woman in an area of medicine that I think is still dominated by men and as a junior faculty. So Eddie, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about this as well. Yeah, I think, um, I think what you just said is eloquent and one of the challenges that we, we will continue to face. I think the, the gender disparity, how um, this particular moment in time has affected um, women in particular in ways that mm-hmm. are not fully recognized yet or we haven't fully um, appreciated is huge. I know at Georgetown, we've been struggling with what just in general, what how we help uh, faculty think about uh, childcare um, because of everything you just described. And we have mm-hmm. faculty members who are homeschooling. We have faculty members who are in you know, a variety of different contexts and then they're being asked to do their jobs and to teach. And it's not just faculty, it's staff. And with childcare um, options being closed, the, the solutions are limited. Um, so flexibility becomes, you know, becomes one of those options. I don't yeah. think pre-COVID that there was a lot of appetite for that, or certainly not for teleworking across the board, you know, in limited contexts. But we had many people in my my center who teleworked, but even still, that was often a challenge. You can imagine yeah. just, you know, setting up meetings with lots of different people and, and whatnot. But I, I think that's that'll be one of the successes here. Um, the people will realize that a lot of work can happen in a, in a remote environment. I think the, the flip side to that is, as I think you alluded to or um, 
directly tried to mention and say is that you can still do a lot of work in this space. And that then means you end up doing a lot of work and the kind of boundary balance between work and, and life starts to become really challenging. If, yeah. if work is not your both vocation and avocation, then trying to find that, you know, how do you end it at a particular time becomes hard in this yeah. kind of environment. If it's both your avocation and your vocation, then forget it. I mean, you're, I, I work you know, 16, 18 hours a day now and those are just it's, it's actually gotten a little bit better it's probably closer to 12 and 14 since the fall started but in the spring you know 18 hour days were just seven days a week that's what you did and a lot of people found that there was just no border between you know when their day ended and when something else took over because they were remote and so figuring that out i think will be be one of our challenges as well but I, you know, I think we still live in a, in a patriarchal society and women are not, I think, seen in a way that allow the, the challenges that are not seen in the same way. And that's something we'll yeah. have to confront. Yeah. And I want to just say for the public record, although I don't think he'll ever listen to this podcast, that I'm very lucky to be married to someone who helps me with um, more than equal amount of childcare and housework. But I do see since COVID hit, I find that personally, I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself to be productive. And so like you said, that work life balance, the lines I used to only do work at work, and that is not true anymore. Uh, And I still think there's a generation of folks, and maybe not even a generation, but just folks with a mindset of people working from home aren't working as hard as I am because I'm here, right? And I don't know, Josh, if you feel that where you are since you've been working remotely for longer than I have, but I think it this pandemic and this crisis that our country has faced will turn that on its head just a little bit. Yeah, it's a great discussion to have. And, and I also hope Max will listen to this um, <laughs> at speed, but he is mentioned <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to end on a bit of a lighter note and maybe Eddie, since you're working so much, (laughs) maybe we'll start with you on this one, but what do you do in your free time to unwind? Uh, Talk with my wife about what I should be doing to unwind. I don't know. It's probably, (laughs) uh, so I get out every night and run or walk, but I'm usually, you know, I start that at like nine 30, 10 o'clock at night. So it's just a late night, but it, it's a good way to end the day for me. And then I play guitar. So I'm, I'm usually playing guitar occasionally and throughout okay. the day trying to just keep my, my head from exploding. I will say I on, the, on the work-life balance thing, yeah. one of the things that if I could just go back to a serious note on the unserious yeah. note, one of the things I think we're going to see is that I have, a, I think there are a lot of people who work way, way too hard in this environment and in, in this remote environment. I think there are also a lot of people who don't. And so we will start to find this kind of this weird discrepancy of people who are carrying a lot more water right now than others and how we actually figure out how to to balance that going forward will be a challenge so don't you think that happened in person work too i mean don't you always feel like you had colleagues who were working a lot harder than other people i don't know no no absolutely you're absolutely right it's just a lot harder to get away with when you're in person (laughs) (laughs) that's true Especially if you plunk people in the middle of an office, which you can't do anymore because we can't have cubicles, but that's a good point. That's right. Um, Yeah. And I I will say I do not formally work from home in the sense that I have to track my hours, but I know people who do. And it's pretty serious stuff. It's like being a lawyer. You feel like every little minute you have to sort of clock it, but it's not like you can't just fib about it. So that's right. um, That's true. So Josh, how are you feeling? What what do you do in your your spare time? Well, I will say um, one thing about spare time is that, you know, Mm -hmm. since my daughters now are at college, we're not really doing any parenting. Um, mm. And and it, I'm amazed, you know, it's it's 
it's not that long ago that we the kids were at home and we were doing all the stuff that you know that you do as parents um, mm-hmm. and parenting is an enormously time intensive task at every age from you know from three years old to 18 years old different time intensive for different things but time energy intensive and since our kids left although the oldest one is back doing graduate school from the couch but she's <laughs> she's self-sufficient time you have uh-huh. so okay. what, what I want to do for fun is I'm excited to write this next book with Eddie and I sort of am thinking about this a lot Eddie still has two kids at home and is running a center and is at the middle of Georgetown in, in academic continuity so he'll he'll have to go back to his 18 hour days as, as we get the next book done Oh, give him a break, man. He needs a break. I'm just well, kidding. The, the good news is that no parenting is happening during the pandemic. These kids are all just going off and becoming feral. So I think. <laughs> well, that's so funny. That's the exact word we used to describe our children, feral. <laughs> we started giving them nicknames of like little, little wild creatures. So yeah, it's, um, it's perfect. But I think we'll all emerge from this stronger people. And I really do think, you know, a lot of people have been hand wringing about children, but I think they're going to be fine. I think children are much more resilient than adults and um, no they doubt. get used to things a lot quicker than we do. So anyway, well, Josh and Eddie, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a real pleasure to speak with you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.